0: Uh, good afternoon. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, uh, I decided actually to uh, give you some uh, brand news uh, coming from Poland regarding actually the the issue of Silesians and German minorities. So before uh, before Professor Paul Betz uh, will introduce today's speaker, uh, I have uh, the first the first piece of news is that. Uh, the word "factbook," which is apparently the publication of the CIA, <laughs> as of today, <laughs> classify the Silesians uh, as an ethnic minority in Poland. So in a way, this is actually a, 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 a huge coup, <laughs> I think, for them, because this is what the what the movement for the autonomy of Silesia has been consistently uh, campaigning for. Another news, which is somehow more gruesome, actually considers the case of um, Dieter. Przewdzink, uh, who is a mayor of a uh, small Silesian town of Zdzieszowice. Uh, I believe that this is in the, in the Opola region, but I'm not really sure about this, who was apparently, whose body was apparently found in his garage today, in this morning. There was apparently the case of a gruesome murder. And uh, Bernard Gaida, who is the chair of the Union of German Associations in Poland, made a public appeal to the Polish government to put close monitoring uh, for the investigation um, into the crime, which obviously caused a whole barrage of comments regarding the German minority as well as Silesians um, in Polish in Polish mass media. Okay, Paul.
1: Okay, very good. It's my great pleasure to uh, chair this seminar tonight in the program on modern Poland here at Oxford. I am Paul Betts, I'm a specialist in 20th century Germany. Um, We have two speakers tonight. Uh, I'll go ahead and start by introducing our main speaker, we also then have a commentator. First uh, is Jim Bjork, he's one of the leading Polish historians uh, in the UK, he's a senior lecturer in the history department at King's College in London, where he's been working uh, since 2005. He's taught at a range of other American universities before arriving in the UK, including uh, Notre Dame, Rice, and Colgate. held. Postdoctoral fellowships at Georgetown and uh, Cornell Universities. He's the author of an award-winning book, or I'm, I'm sure many of you know of it, um, Neither German Nor Pole, Catholicism, and The Natural, National Indifference in a Central European Borderland. That was published by University of Michigan in 2008. And his current research is on the kind of local, national, and transnational uh, dimensions of Catholicism after the Second World War. So and you see that the title of this talk today, and we're in a lucky situation in which we then have um, uh, Dr. Hugo Service, who's a departmental lecture uh, here at Oxford. Um, before he joined the faculty in two thousand twelve, he was a postdoctoral fellowship uh, British Academy in Cambridge. Uh, just last summer, he published his first book um, entitled Germans to Poles, Communism, Nationalism, and Ethnic Cleansing, After the Second World War, which is a study of the population transfers and cultural transformations uh, in Poland's uh, Western territories. And he himself is now working on a project on Upper Silesia during and after the Second World War. So we'll go ahead and uh, turn it over to Jim then for about 45 minutes, and then Hugo then will respond in 15 minutes or so after that, and we'll open up for general uh, discussion. Okay, Jim please. Okay. Well thanks very much Paul for the
2: kind introduction. Um and many thanks to Mikwai Kunitsky and and to Paul Betts for their hospitality today, very kind invitation to come to speak to you today. Um, and also uh, thanks to the PICO service for agreeing to do the commentary. Um as Paul indicated it'll be a especially well informed commentary since a lot of Pigo's own work has involved Upper Silesia. When the details of the Polish census of 2011 were released in 2012, they were not, for the most part, stuff of newspaper headlines, but there was at least one result that was truly attention-grabbing, um, certainly in Poland, but also in at least some more discerning circles in the English-speaking world. A total of 847,000 people had declared themselves to be ethno-nationally Silesian. More Than four times the number who had declared Silesian nationality in the previous census in 2002. Many of those who had identified as Silesian had declared this as a second nationality alongside Polish, in um, a few cases alongside German as well. But even the smaller number of Polish citizens who had declared Silesian as their sole ethno national ethno-national identification, uh, about 376,000, even that figure was double the count of Silesians from nine years earlier. Already Poland's largest self declared national minority in 2002, Silesians now made up a hefty majority of all those identifying with an ethnicity other than Polish. This was certainly not a change that was driven by migration or differential birth rates. Indeed, Silesians were much more likely to be emigrating from than immigrating to Poland. Instead, this was clearly the result of changes in people's subjective identification. Hundreds of thousands of people who had declared themselves of Polish nationality in 2002 were declaring themselves now of Silesian ethno nationality in 2011. And a slight drop between the two censuses in the number of self declared Germans from about 152,000 to 148,000 suggests that there was also likely at least a very small number of Polish citizens who had shifted from a primarily German ethno national identification to a primarily Silesian identification. This striking shift in formal ethnic-national affiliation both reflected and has further spurred the efforts of activists to cultivate a Silesian cultural awakening and to achieve Silesian political autonomy. Uh, the Union of People of Silesian Nationality, known as which was founded in 1996, um, had engaged in a very long legal campaign uh, through Poland and eventually Euro- through Polish and eventually European courts. To gain official recognition of Silesian as a nationality. Um, And apparently, they had a breakthrough with the CIA very recently. Mm -hmm. Um, And a separate but related political party, the Movement for Silesian Autonomy, the Eurokautonomie Tronska, founded in 1990, had something of a a breakthrough electoral result in the most recent regional elections in Silesia in 2010 winning eight and a half percent of the total vote in the province uh, of the Województwo of Silesia, up from 4.3 percent in the previous regional elections. Um, and so the movement, um, the autonomy movement, went on to join the coalition government in the regional parliament as a, a junior partner to in platform, the platform, the leading party in Poland's current overall governing coalition. Um, the, the autonomy movement um, recently, last spring, uh, left the coalition. So silesian in short, has become something of a hot topic in the past few years, most obviously within Silesia regionally, um, but really across Poland more generally, um, as Nikola was pointing to, and some people in this room are very aware, um, Israel comes up quite regularly in the, the Polish press as a whole. Leading Polish politicians and cultural figures have been weighing in on the phenomenon. Um, on whether Silesian self-assertion represents a threat to Polish national identity, perhaps even to the integrity of the Polish state, or instead represents a a welcome and overdue manifestation of Poland's internal cultural diversity. Now, my talk today is only going to be touching tangentially on these more forward-looking policy questions, um, which are central to these current-day debates. Um, Should Silesia gain further administrative autonomy should Silesia gain outright independence, I'm on the model of the, the current Scottish bid for independence? Um, to what extent should Silesian language and culture be cultivated as something distinct from Polish language and culture? Um, and despite having lived myself in Katowice, the largest city in Silesia, for uh, for quite a while, almost two years, I can't really claim to be enough of a stakeholder in these debates, or even really followed all the uh, detailed twists and turns over the past twenty years. So a little modesty and humility on those questions is appropriate, I think. But what my talk will be focusing on instead is the question of what these recent quite dramatic changes in ethno-national identification mean. Um, I want to start briefly by discussing two approaches to this question, um, each familiar but also very different, and neither of which I would argue really quite get at the heart of what has been involved in this case when people have shifted from one national category to another. Now, according to the first approach, which might be described as a kind of cultural realist approach, the nationality, especially the ethnicity, of any given person should be able should be derivable from observable characteristics. With language often seen as the, the, the pivotal <laughs> characteristic, um, ethno-national identification is then a matter of accurate categorization, first and foremost, something one can get right or one can get wrong. Now, those sympathetic to Silesian nationhood often invoke um, this kind of understanding in arguing that the particular Slavic speech prevalent in Upper Silesia, um, which is most generally described as a form of Polish, of the Warašanska or the Silesian dialect, implicitly of Polish, that that speech is in fact a distinctive language or ethnelect or a, a set of related ethnolects. Um, and Tomasz Kamasella, um, a historian, a broadly social scientist, very multidisciplinary, uh, who teaches up north at St. Andrews, um, has written most systematically in describing Schlonsach as a distinctive language um, prevalent across formerly Prussian, Upper Silesia, and he's identified with somewhat distinct, but related um, ethnolex of Schlundsack in the southeast, and Lorovetz in the southwest. Um, just part of this kind of initial general orientation for those of you not up in Silesian, the light green area in the south, this is just point at this point. Uh, so this is the region we'll be uh, we focusing on today. and. Um, this is, and again, I think both in terms of the coding here as well as the shading gets at these kind of ongoing debates about exactly where to draw the line and how thick a line between forms of Polish um, and Silesian. In um, this particular chart does kind of separate out Silesian from uh, what are more firmly described as kind of dialects of uh, greater, or lesser Polish or Lizobian. um, but also a certain kind of continuum of, of Slavic uh, linguistic practice dating um, to the, the Czech and Slovak lands as well. Um, it's worth noting this, so you might, because I thrown by the, uh, the shift here. I'll quickly be talking more about Upper Silesia, um, which for most intents and purposes is really a synonym for Silesian. Um, it might seem an odd slippage, but especially since the Second World War, it really was related to the fact to see the light green areas there are areas that were really largely repopulated wholesale after the war, Um, and so lower Silesian is kind of a annoying ethnic category, simply lapses at that point, I think it's it's fair to say. Um, So there is, in this, um, again, somewhat confusing slippage between Silesian and upper Silesian is basically referring to exactly the same people. Now, transforming spoken idioms into standardized vernaculars, so thus elevating them for dialect to language, is a well-known plot point in the script of nation-building. Maroslav Hrok, in his famous analysis of the awakening of small nations in Europe in the 19th century, described consolidation of a literary language as an essential first step of stage A in that process. But I am generally skeptical that this of the Silesian ethno national self assertion that we see today really hinges on that kind of linguistic question. Um, there are people here today with better grounding in linguistics as such. And um, again, it's not an issue I'll be getting into great detail about the linguistic analysis of these distinctions. But the timing of stage A um, in the cases that Hrock was analyzing, um, that timing varied but it was always either on the eve of or at the latest in the early stages of the establishment of mass schooling. And that was a threshold that upper Silesia crossed more than 150 years ago, as first standardized Polish in the mid-19th century, and then standard German after 1863 became the regional school language. So ever since, not only Polish and German nationalists, but also those advocating some form of Silesian regionalism, have really worked with the assumption that standard German and standard Polish were the two alternatives that local people had to choose from in reading, writing, um, and even to some extent in speaking in formal settings. Um, I should note too that in terms of the southern edge of this region, uh, standard literary Czech also comes into play at the very, very southern extremes. I'll be kind of bracketing that out a bit for, for simplicity um, and folks on the, the main uh, very of Prussian Silesia where it really is a kind of German-Polish binary. Upper Silesia's Catholic clergy have been perhaps the most striking example of that tendency to conflate its sort of regional sensibility with a conviction that language is a kind of binary choice between German and Polish. While most local priests were fierce opponents of Polish nationalism in the late 19th and early 20th century, they were equally first defenders of providing religious instruction for Slavic-speaking children in standard literary Polish. And they insisted that efforts to try to draw a line between the regional dialect, which in German is often uh, majority of refer to as trying to distinguish that from standard Polish, they argued, was simply an attempt by the German government to sabotage instruction in what they viewed um, as the, the children's Polish mother tongue. Uh, indeed, some representatives of the local Catholic Church, um, as well as other members of the local intelligentsia, um, have really been quite consistent over the 20th century in articulating regional, dis- regional distinctiveness in terms of German Polish bilingualism or binationalism, rather than in terms of mastery of a separate local language. Now, this is not to doubt the subsequent resilience of the distinctive Silesian idiom. Or the importance of oral traditions that have certainly used this regional idiom to pass on elements of a particular local culture. But I think there's little to suggest that the recent surge in identification as Silesian has corresponded with or have been driven by a systematic development or revival of the use of a distinctive Silesian language. I think it's revealing the in two thousand and two census um, that did track both nationality and language of home use. Less than a third of those who identified even then as Silesian by nationality cited Silesian as their primary language of domestic communication. Uh, far more Polish citizens actually reported using English as their primary home language than reported using Silesian. So speaking Silesian, I think, is really best a kind of lagging indicator of Silesianness and not the, the primary driver of this phenomenon. Now, a second understanding of this recent striking shift in ethno national identification could be described as a kind of interest based approach. Rather than reflecting um, a kind of underlying immersion in Silesian language and culture, the adoption of a Silesian self identity is seen here as a matter of pragmatic, civic identification with fellow current day residents of a region who all share certain uh, desiderata and certain grievances primarily economic. The common portrayal of Silesia as a region of enormous mineral wealth um, Mm -hmm. that has been exploited by a rapacious center, so earlier Berlin, more recently Warsaw, would seem to support that kind of a view. Um, It's this theme of economic exploitation by outsiders has a very long history in Silesian Mm -hmm. regional rhetoric, dating back at least to the language of upper Silesian autonomous following the First World War, we'll be talking about a little bit more in a moment. And it's certainly reflected in the language of the current movement for Silesian autonomy today. But looking closely at patterns of Silesian self-identification, I think, cast doubt on the centrality of this kind of discourse. The notion of Silesia as a uniquely wealth-generating region um, rests on a what today is a bit dated um, equation of economic productivity with heavy industrial production, so wealth is primarily coming from coal mining, um, which did work for quite a long time into the late 20th century, but a little less so now, Um, but that kind of thinking would really imply that the entire industrial congregation at the heart of the current um, province of Oyelutsko-Silesia should feel the same kind of sense of economic grievance. But in fact, um, next set of maps here, um, in the eastern part of that conurbation, that's known as the, the Zguembia region, the, the Rokka Basin, there's really been vanishingly little <coughs> either Silesian national identification or electoral support for the movement for Silesian autonomy. Um, just to explain this group, this is a map of, um, the two part of the on the left of the counties in which more than 10% of the population declared of um, nationality or ethno-nationality other than Polish. As uh, so you can see, there's several concentrations here. The largest is of, uh, uh, of Salesians in the green area to the um, southwest. As we'll hopefully compare we move from map to map, it's an extraordinary um, sort of recapitulation of the old Prussian district of of Obom, almost precisely, um, and doesn't correspond to any boundaries that have existed since then time, but it leaps out again um, in this map. So a very sharp boundary you see, particularly um, across the current way of the Spoh in the east. Um, This is a map of electoral results showing uh, with darker, showing higher levels of support for this movement for Silesian autonomy. And again, you see a very, very sharp line at the old pre-First World War Russian-German frontier in um, these areas of the Dnipro Basin. It's in it, kind of economic terms, it's an integrated heavy industrial center. You sort of take a tram across the whole um, region, but in, in terms of these kind of identifications, a very, very sharp, locally very, very well-known hard boundary. So in drawing attention to that very sharp distinction across the current way of Utsuko, that's not to deny that more general resentment of centralist government or feelings of economic exploitation aren't real and that some of that might not apply more broadly, including in, in Zimbabwe. But I don't think they're very persuasive explanations for, for these kinds of patterns that we see um, patterns in, in identification of Silesian nationality or, or support for Silesian autonomy. Rather than language and culture then, um, and rather than economic interest, what I would argue is really defined and driven the recent mass adoption of Silesian identity has been a, a complicated revisiting and rethinking of historical narratives, and I'll be talking about particularly some pivotal 20th century historical events. The creation of a Silesian national community, in other words, has had less to do with identification of shared traits in the present and much more to do with working through an understanding of a shared past, a shared set of experiences. So, I'll be devoting most of the rest of the talk to sketching out some interesting implications of the current surge in Silesian national identification for understanding Silesian history, um, and by extension, for also for understanding rethinking German and Polish histories. Um, since these national histories have been uh, partially composed of Silesian life stories, it might be useful, and apologies here for those already familiar with this, but as a, as a kind of foil or point of reference, i are just going to do a very uh, uh, whirlwind history of, uh, of Silesia, really based on a kind of standard Polish national narrative and how Silesia fits into that. Um, And it's the narrative that we should stress that a lot of native Silesians, um, certainly past until today, would tend to adhere to themselves. In this understanding, Upper Silesia was a predominantly Polish-speaking land, going back to time immemorial, that had the misfortune of early separation from a Polish state. So all of Silesia had become attached to the Bohemian crown lands in the 14th century, and 1740, almost all of Silesia Um, was uh, conquered by Frederick the Great's Prussia. The region's Polish inhabitants were subsequently subjected to generations of Germanization, (laughs) peaking in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The imposition of German language and culture was ultimately, by the turn of the 20th century, resisted by a homegrown Polish national movement, with native son uh, Wojciech Horfanti serving as its most charismatic leader. But it was only with Germany's defeat at the end of the First World War that Upper Silesians were given a real opportunity to end this forced attachment to Germany and join their Polish homeland. Due to a variety of factors, uh, pressure from landlords in rural areas, the impact of non-resident voters, British perfidy, um, a frontier plebiscite in 1921 did not go quite as planned, did not go as favorably to Poland as had been hoped. Um, Only about 40% of the electorate opted for Poland, whereas language statistics would suggest that something more like 60% uh, should have. But after decades of Germanization, this might still be seen as as a fairly impressive result. In any case, uh, Polish majorities in... I'll to this map here, helpful for reference. Polish majorities in the eastern part of the region led to about half of Upper Silesia being awarded to Poland, so they think bright like green areas in the east there. In the interwar period, revisionist pressures from Vers Weimar and then Nazi Germany complicated the integration of Eastern Upper Silesia into the new Polish state, while the continuation of Germanizing trends in the western part of Upper Silesia further eroded Polish national identification, and even the everyday use of the Polish language. The Nazi invasion of Poland in 1939 brought all of Upper Silesia back under German rule, ushering in another, even more extreme, campaign of Germanization. Residents were required to sign up for the Deutsche Volksliste, the German nationality list or ethnic racial list, a registry set up to sort people into appropriate racial categorizations. And this resulted in the vast majority of the population being categorized as Volksdeutsche, or racial Germans. At the end of the war, Soviet and Polish forces moving into the region initially viewed Upper Silesians simply as Germans. um, And many were arrested, deported, or placed in labor camps. Only over subsequent months did the Polish government set up mechanisms for the rehabilitation or verification of Poles who had been classified as German against their will. And despite these belated attempts to reintegrate Upper Silesians into Poland, residual discrimination and dissatisfaction with life in communist Poland led many Upper Silesians to seek to emigrate, with hundreds of thousands leaving the region from the 1950s through to the 1980s. So that's the basic narrative that one can find in mainstream Polish accounts of Upper Silesian history. And obviously there are differences between various narratives, um, say between official histories from the communist era versus those of emigrate historians. But those differences tend to be fairly minor and marginal, um, really mostly pivoting on differing evaluations of particular individuals or particular parties acting on behalf of Poland. The common main theme running through these narratives and one that's particularly pronounced in discussion of the late modern era of the 20th century Is Upper Silesian's lack of agency. Inhabitants of the region are assumed to have had Polish national characteristics, interests, and sentiments that they were unable to express through word or action, and apparently German characteristics, interests, and sentiments were in turn understood to have been fundamentally unreal, to have been the result of top-down coercion so, how would a more Silesian national understanding of Silesian history differ from this kind of account? Um, how, in other words, would someone switching from a more Polish to more Silesian self identification come to view his or her history differently? It's perhaps easier to see some fundamental, fundamental elements of this historical narrative that would not need to change dramatically, um, in particular, the central theme of lack of agency just as the theme of suppressed Polishness had dominated Polish national narratives of Upper Silesian history at least through the First World War suppressed Silesianness could now define the region's history at least up to the fall of the communist regime coercive top-down polonization was now coupled with coercive top-down germanization as forces that shaped Upper Silesian history while obscuring the true identities and interests of Upper Silesians but the limitations of this kind of approach will, I think be the apparent. Um, it tends toward an Upper Silesian history in which Upper Silesians are either silent or are only able to recite scripts written by others while they were wearing the ill-fitting costumes of Germans or Poles. Looking more closely at what were arguably the two most dramatic and traumatic moments in Upper Silesian history. Um, who I hope further illuminate this interesting dilemma. The first is the plebiscite of 1921, something kind I of touched on briefly earlier. Now, if lack of agency had been the problematic theme of most of upper Solution history, this seemed to be an occasion that offered agency in spades. The referendum, which was by far the largest and most contentious of several that were held after the Paris peace settlement, gave residents of the region an opportunity that few human beings have ever had to cast a ballot indicating which nation state they want their home soil to join. Unfortunately, from the viewpoint of an Upper Silesian patriot, this shared moment of sovereign choice, the first and only time that Upper Silesia um, has really emerged as a distinctive polity was an exercise in one person, one vote, one time. The Upper Silesian electorate was, after all, voting on how to dissolve itself and merge either with a German or with a Polish nation state. Now, turnout out the referendum was extraordinarily high, about 99%, more than 99%, I think, with uh, very few spoiled ballots. So that meant that, strictly speaking, almost every adult Upper Silesian at the time did actually make a choice between affiliation with Germany or with Poland. So, how could this process, which was explicitly aimed at sorting out Germans from Poles, be integrated as a formal formative moment of a shared Upper Silesian history? Now, one obvious approach has been to highlight um, an alternative Upper Silesian regionalist agenda at the time, uh, specifically embodied in the League of Upper Silesians, uh, the Bundesrepublik Schlesier, Związek Bernow Schwanzaków. Which lobbied during the run up to the plebiscite for the creation of an autonomous, or even a completely independent, Upper Silesian Free State. The argument that, upper, that the League of Upper Silesians uh, may have represented a kind of silent majority of Upper Silesian public opinion is certainly plausible. Um, the League itself claimed a membership of several hundred thousand at its peak, um, with comparable circulation figures for its eponymous newspaper. But the League and Upper Solution separatism more generally um, was an extraordinary fluid and murky phenomena. It's very tough actually as a historian to get a grip on. Um, its operations seem to have actually been bankrolled by several wealthy Catholic industrialist magnates who had their own interest in an Upper Solution free state. Um, so it's difficult to interpret the movement as a kind of unmediated box populi sort of rising up from below. Um, And its leaders uh, generally remain quite elusive and and cryptic figures. Um, Some actually only worked for the League for a while before turning to advocacy of the German or Polish cause. Um, And others really vanish into complete obscurity um, figures I've tried to track myself and there's very, very little material on them. So with a narrative of open, widespread defiance of the plebiscite by ordinary eposalesians, is difficult to sustain as, as a really robust narrative. a more plausible and subtle approach would concede a degree of pro-Polish or pro-German preference among many inhabitants, but still insist on the fundamentally fratricidal nature of that dispute. Now that kind of interpretation fits quite nicely, actually, with a lot of classic views of how national communities more generally managed to digest episodes of internal conflict um, into their histories. Um, In the Ernest Renan's famous formulation, simultaneously remembering and forgetting them, um, except at the end of my birth, St. Bartholomew's Day in France, that a French person sort of knows about, but can kind of narrate as a family feud that's been overcome. Um, And this also dovetails with uh, theories of democratization uh, we're going some formulations. This concept of a hot family feud has played a central role as something that provides a framework for aggregating interest groups as competing um, groups in society, but also develops mechanisms for common democratic self rule. So, this kind of narration is sort of not something really extraordinary. But those moments of internal division and even episodes of civil war um, can really only be assimilated to those national histories if there is. Some sense of a continuous, longer, shared story into which they can be absorbed. So, what might provide that kind of sense of commonality and continuity in longer narratives about Versaillesian history? Now, interestingly and somewhat jarringly, um, I'd suggest that it's actually the experience of the Second World War and its immediate aftermath that is, in many ways, the most useful. For creating a centripetal narrative of Upper Silesian history. In other words, a narrative in which Upper Silesians could be seen as having shared a community of fate with one another rather than with the sensible German or Polish countrymen beyond the region. It was Nazi wartime racial policy in conjunction with the handling of the legacy of that policy by the post-war Polish state that I would argue did more than anything else to solidify that sense of a regional community fate. Okay. On to a uh, person uh, during the Second World War, I'll talk in a moment in more detail about that map. Now. now what I've just said might seem like a paradoxical claim. Um, both Nazi racial policy and post-war Poland's policy of national rehabilitation and verification were after all aimed at an emphatic sorting out of Germans from Poles. In the lands of interwar Poland, annexed by Germany during the war, Poles were best treated as a subordinate race and were in the long run targeted for expulsion further east. And after the war was local Germans, whose ongoing presence in the region was deemed no longer tolerable. So the understandable assumptions of historians and social scientists studying the impact of these policies has been that once individuals were placed in these categories, they were essentially stuck there. The Nazis targeted as Poles, who had been deemed Poles before the war. The Germans targeted by the post Polish government were in turn essentially, presumably, the same as those whom the Nazis had understood to be German. But this commonsensical view is very far from what actually happened in Upper Silesia. Um, or well, just to mention a parallel case that I won't be into detail in. Uh, Polish Pomerania or West Prussia, which had a very similar wartime experience, Upper Silesia. Uh, Just to dramatize the the statistics, the suddenness and near universality of the switch, in the last interwar census in the part of Upper Silesia that had passed from German to Polish rule in 1922, 7% of the resident population was deemed to be of German nationality In a police census carried out three months after the German invasion of 1939, 95% of the population in former Prussian territory was counted as German. The more systematic Deutsche Volksliste, uh, uh, which was carried out uh, starting a year and a half later, produced very similar results. Only 5% of the population failed to adhere to the German nationality registry, and over 90% of those who did adhere were categorized as racially German. Um, albeit subject to some significant restrictions in the case of the, the very large number who were placed in category three of the Volksliste. In the meantime, um, just to encompass uh, the German part of interwar Silesia, um, in those areas, um, all residents continue to simply have the status of Reichsdeutsche as German state citizens. Um, and this was essentially sort of a racialized understanding under the Nazis, uh, regardless of any Slavic linguistic background. Um, the only exceptions would be uh, would have been a very tiny handful of vocal Polish activists, um, and of course, Jews of um, course systematically excluded from that definition. So the Second World War was um, really a moment of extraordinary, almost unprecedented unity in a way for of the vast majority of Upper Silesians. The classification of almost the entirety of the population as German was, to be sure, in many ways a straightforward reassertion of earlier state affiliation. Um, it simply, in practice, referred to the fact that people had been German citizens prior to 1922. So, just to look uh, at this map a bit. This is the larger Dow of uh, Oberschlesien over Silesia and its expanded boundaries during the Second World War. But in terms of the way the Volksliste worked, again, these old boundaries, the same ones you saw earlier, where the uh, pre-war, pre-First World War boundary of Prussia had been, it's within those boundaries that basically the entire population is deemed racially German. You move across that frontier of German uh, racial policy was completely flipped, and uh, especially to the east of that line, hardly anyone was placed on the German nationality list. In the south, in the former Austrian areas, it's a bit more of a mixed picture, a bit closer to the the Prussian side, um, but not quite as systematic of a blanket reclassification of the population. So. While in terms of what was driving the policy, you can see the power of these older or essentially state affiliations as really being an almost perfect predictor really of, um, of what status people would have during the war. Um, and Nazi policy officially and quite dramatically reconfigured this kind of civic or state status into a racial classification. So gone, at least officially, was the understanding that it previous, previously prevailed during the era of Prussia rule, that most residents of the region were from a Polish or Slavis, Slavic-speaking background, or essentially understanding that they were ethnically Polish in some way. Now it's easy to mock this official Nazi insistence that Upper Silesians were almost all of German descent. Um, German government reports from the period are replete with complaints about how both local Reichsdeutsche in the Western part of the and Volksdeutsche in the East, were routinely using Polish in daily life. Um, it's a very, very common theme. But observing that these ostensible Germans were not really German is in many ways missing the point. Um, of course, these Nazi racial classifications were fundamentally absurd in many ways. But they were important not because they were accurate, but because they were self fulfilling. They ensured that Upper Silesians had an essentially German experience of the war men being enlisted into the Wehrmacht, adolescents being recruited to the Hitler Youth or the League of German Girls, adults of both sexes being forbidden to marry non Germans. The Nazi regime's extraordinarily capacious definition of racial German in Upper Silesia. Um, and again, this basically applies to Pomerania as well, though exactly how it's applied differ in interesting ways. That extraordinarily broad definition um, had a counterintuitive but on close examination quite predictable outcome after the war. The wartime German status of almost every ongoing inhabitant of the region made it extraordinarily difficult for the post-war Polish government to sort out real Germans after the war. Now there was, to be sure, a kind of rough and ready process of self-selection as a minority of residents with little or no connection to local Slavic language or culture, um, as well as those involved in the most notorious institutions of the Nazi regime, such as the SS or higher ranking Nazi officials. Those that's minority duly fled to the West, um, either uh, ahead of the advance of the Soviet army. Um, or with uh, at the cusp of that advance, but since one's basic wartime status as a German, and even one's categorization within the Volksliste as category one, two, three, or four, uh, which sort of reflecting descending degrees of Germanness, since all of that was understood as a matter of top-down coercion rather than free choice, vanishingly few applications for post-war rehabilitation for those on the Volksliste or verification of Reichsdeutsche in Western Upper Silesia were actually rejected. Um, Just to cite one striking example of the kind of pattern you see um, in this case of a verification commission in Western Upper Silesia. Um, In one village in Kozla County, the verification commission found uh, 15 former Nazi party members, but still concluded that there were no Germans in the village. Now, revealingly and interestingly, one distinction that many observers had assumed might provide a way to divide uh, the population after the war was uh, whether they had fallen into category two or three of the folks list uh, about half of the population former Prussian upper Silesia had been category three, uh, about for 50 to 20% category two. So they really kind of represent the, the bulk of the local population. Um, Now, during the occupation, uh, there was a kind of um, intuitive sense among a lot of the local residents that this really would be decisive after the war. Um, In part, it was just kind of visually cued by the fact that category one and two Volksdeutsche had a different color identity card than category three Volksdeutsche. So the saying that became quite ubiquitous during the war was uh, eins, zwei, Utschikei, drei, vier, bleiben hier. Uh, So one, two, run away, three, four, and um, stay. And so, again, a very understandable kind of intuition. And right after the war, um, this did seem to be borne out by the fact that those in category two were initially required to seek individual rehabilitation by a court, while those in category three were granted blanket administrative re- re- uh, rehabilitation, a mass. But the idea that twos and threes had represented starkly differentiated groups under Nazi rule had always been quite an oversimplification. Um, It's one that continues to have have a a life in Nams scholarship today. Um, I hate to pick on as excellent a scholar as Mark Mazauer, but in his book, uh, Hitler's Empire, um, he actually states that that threes um, were forbidden to marry Germans. Um, In other words, they were effectively viewed by the authorities as Poles in terms of the racial policing of their marriage pool. Um, In fact, exactly the opposite was the case. Um, Category 3s were forbidden to marry Poles and could only marry Germans. Um, And this policy both reflected and had the uh, tendency to reinforce a pattern that was observable on the ground um, during the war and at its end. One post-war commentator estimated that every upper Silesian in Category 2 had an average of four close blood relatives in Category 3. Um, and the fact that most Category 3, or most, sorry, most Category 2 up were embedded in families and neighborhoods that were predominantly in Category 3 seems to have contributed to this very lenient attitude toward Category 2s in practice And once the rehabilitation process ran its, its course. Uh, So as I mentioned before, the petitions for rehabilitation of Category 2 Volksdeutsche that were decided in the first year after the war, only a handful resulted in rejection. And from the summer of 1946, the legal distinction between Categories 2 and 3 was abolished altogether. So moving into the late 1940s, uh, again, despite the devilish complexities and quick twists and turns of both wartime Nazi racial policy and post-war Polish rehabilitation and verification policy. These policies had cumulatively produced a very large, very distinctive and fairly well-defined community of fate. Uh, roughly two million people who spent the war as Germans and were reclassified as Poles after the war's end. Um, it's precisely those who have gone through this specific sequence of rapid and radical Germanization, followed by rapid and radical Polonization, who constitute the clear potential recruitment pool of ethno-national Swesians. So, how then can these shared experiences be narrated into a kind of history or story of a Silesian nation? And um, again, how would this really be different? from the way it could be woven into narratives of German or Polish history. my um, sense those answers still remain far from clear. Among some self-identified Salesians, um, one can find attempts to try to reclaim pride in wartime experiences um, in ways in, that seem quite difficult, actually, distinguish from German nationalism, or even in some cases, kind of outright neo-Nazism um it's easy to find some places like this on some Silesian oriented websites in the comments page as one tends to find on lots of comment pages um uh it's so the but comments in that kind of vein that are sort of straightforwardly celebrating service in the Wehrmacht and other defining wartime experiences i think can charitably be put to the side as as marginal um the exception rather than the rule among this very large group of people who have shifted Silesian self identification. The more common approach has really been to disavow, to continue to disavow any voluntary participation in the Nazi regime, citing the coercive nature of Silesian's enlistment into the Volksgemeinschaft. Now, this, of course, is only in many ways a modest variation on what became the more or less official post war Polish understanding. Of the wartime classification of Silesians as Germans. Once again, lack of agency is really the central theme here. Whether people's real submerged identity was understood to have been Polish or Silesian, categorization as German was a fiction imposed from above. Um, and many people in this room will also recognize this as an example of a very familiar kind of debate in post war Europe. Um, to what extent does a group's ostensible general status as victims of nazism exempted from scrutiny as possible perpetrators um, and these kind of debates have raged around the working class women austrians alsatians more um, recently poles in general and a plethora of other demographic groups um, and while well, one can still certainly find those who would take uh, an absolutist position that membership in a particular category must be seen as automatically exculpatory I think it's fair to say that most scholars have of generally come to agree that this kind of exoneration by taxonomy um, is really an unhelpful way of dealing with responsibility for the past, um, and that would apply to Salesians as much as to any other group. The problems inherent in a narration of the war in the immediate post-war era as an episode of straightforward, unambiguous victimization, um, I think are apparent in accounts of what have recently described as, uh, in some cases, outright Silesian activists, but also as others, um, as a discrete tragedy of the Upper Silesian tragedy, um, generally starting, revealingly, in 1945, and running over the next several years. Now there can be no doubt about the human suffering um, involved in the events that that term encompasses. Uh, the immediate aftermath of the war, tens of thousands of local inhabitants were either deported to the USSR or interned in local labor camps. Um, probably several thousand cumulatively perished from malnourishment and maltreatment during those experiences. Um, so recent historiographical investigations of those incidents are very important and commendable um, as is security of the entire vast catalog of human suffering in Europe in the late 40s. But narrating the immediate post-war era simply in terms of an Upper Silesian tragedy um, is surely missing really the most striking and, in many ways, unique aspect of the region's experience in this period. Upper Silesian's demographic persistence um, in what was otherwise an era of massive demographic rupture across the German-Slavic frontier of Central Europe, Um, there was, in other words, Relatively little little that was uniquely upper Silesian about the suffering experienced during the 40s. Some upper Silesians were clearly persecuted as Poles by the Nazis. Others were targeted as Germans by the post-war communist government in Poland. It was the relatively unique and uh, I could fairly use the term relatively successful mass migration between national categories that made for a kind of distinctively Upper Silesian story, a story that provides an explanation for the existence and place of such a large population of potential national Silesians in the early 21st century. So, isolating a kind of discrete Upper Silesian tragedy while usefully drawing attention to these particular local experiences, I think unhealthily isolates those experiences from the broader European context that made them possible. Um, And it sometimes also, unfortunately, lent itself to a a misleading notion that victimization of Upper Silesians was due to the machinations of a foreign Bolshevik occupation. um, Unfortunately, in some iterations, uh, swing to a sort of Judeo-Bolshevik portrayal of this occupation. I think one only needs to look at the parallel experiences of France in dealing with its own former Germans in Alsace the Orador trial in the early 1950s, to see that addressing this kind of legacy was inevitably going to be a divisive and wrenching one, um, as those with vastly different wartime experiences were now being asked to live together as co-nationals. The tendency of Silesian national narratives the war to insist on absolute victimization, um, of course, re- recalls some familiar characteristics of Polish national narratives of the war, but there's also a striking difference. Uh, Polish narratives of the same period hinge on stories of active resistance, not just passive victimization, and so provided some satisfying sense of collective agency. Uh, For residents of Silesia trying to engage in that narrative, this was admittedly a kind of proxy agency, since only a small minority of Silesians were, um, were actively participating in the Polish resistance. But if Silesians were essentially Poles, then the entire broader history of the Polish wartime resistance could be described as their history too. Narration of the war in terms of a narrow Silesian history by contrast would seem to preclude this kind of proxy heroism. Um, So what could or should take its place? Um, Where would one find Silesian actors rather than just Silesian victors? in what was created a very pivotal moment in Silesian history. Uh, One answer, I think, poses a wrenching but probably necessary challenge, accepting that historical agency might involve some degree of historical responsibility, and that searches for heroes might just as easily turn up villains, as well as, of course, the entire spectrum of human behavior in between. Um, And this kind of reckoning would parallel and partially overlap with well-known debates in broader the broader Polish public recently about interwar, wartime, and post-war anti-Semitism. Um, I think the most judicious and helpful recent explorations of Silesia's wartime history have really refused to bracket that history uh, from Polish history to try to separate it out. Um, Richard Kaczmarek's recent um of the polls in the Wehrmacht signals this refusal of the title um, as we're dealing with Salesians, with Pomeranians, as Poles. Um, and I think that's that quite right and useful since subsequent Polish history was fundamentally shaped by the decision to recognize millions of wartime Germans as post-war Poles. And while his account is truly sympathetic um, in many respects and very carefully chronicles all of the constraints faced by those who were compelled to subscribe to the Volksliste he also recounts stories that show that some of um could use what little agency they had in quite deplorable ways. Um, so it might be depressing that one of the most memorable individual characters to emerge from his account is Franz who uh, who's the director of the famous Auschwitz Orchestra, who's um, an inmate of Upper Silesian origin, he was actually allowed to leave the camp toward the end of the war to join the German army. Um, and it's certainly the untenable um, Helpful to describe Nerikuo as a kind of typical Upper Silesian, but he did certainly represent a very real possibility of what individuals might do with the liminal national position in which Upper Silesians found themselves. Um, now, trying to digest these kind of difficult stories into a Silesian national history might seem a tall order. Um, in practice, after all, don't people identify with a collective story to gain inspiration, to find role models? rather than to painfully grapple with unmasterable pasts. Um, but I think that kind of pessimistic assessment ignores an interesting comparison or example just in the southwest of Silesia, uh, the Czech lands. Uh, most people in this room probably be familiar to a varying degrees with a distinctive Czech sensibility in dealing with difficult and traumatic events, um, the kind of absurdist ironic spirit of the good soldier, Schweik. Um, and the kind of approach we see particularly in portrayals of the Second World War, such as in uh, Yitza Menzel's films that uh, watch trains from quite a while ago, and I served the King of England more recently. Um, they're also from uh, Divided and Fall. These accounts necessarily center on anti-heroes rather than heroes and embrace a kind of dark humor that seems like it should be wildly inappropriate for the subject matter, and yet somehow seems to work very true. And one does see some elements of the sensibility in uh, upper Silesian literature about the war, including, um, of course, Viennick's Leibitz trilogy of of author writing in in German uh, about the late 1930s through the war. Um, Just to cite one anecdote in that vein, um, Viennick describes a character named Mazurek deliberating on when he should put uh, a, a sheet out as a kind of white flag at the end of the war. Um, noting that he would be strung by the Nazis and put it out too early or might be shot by the Soviets if he put it out too late. Um, he limits that he really wasn't good with this kind of timing decision um, since he had actually decided to join the German Communist Party in 1933. Um, and that kind of black humor in accounts of other experience against the war, I, I suspect, um, is quite pervasive of the world tradition, though it's quite rare, I think, in terms of Literary trails, at least in Poland. The more common approach of the local Italian Getzia has been to frame the paradoxes of Upper Silesian history in more earnest, often fairly mystical terms. That's um, no doubt related to the fact that the region's spokespeople have been disproportionately drawn from the Roman Catholic clergy. Um, so figures like um, Eric Shibata, um a Jesuit theologian who was born in Katowice. Um, have talked about Upper Silesian's internal contradictions generating a kind of mission, um, as you put it, a mission to become the material out of which Europeans are made. Um, and again, many in this room might note the kind of similarity and sensibility with classic Polish messianism. Um, so the idea of misfortune being processed into a redemptive mission. Uh, so the Silesian variant, it seemed seem to amount to a kind of for your hybridity and ours, kind of solidarity of, of, of borderland peoples. Um, but again, it'll be interesting in the future to see if this starts being translated into more kind of Czech idiom of irony and self-deprecation. So just to conclude, um, again, appropriate with a priest, since again, they've played a disproportionate role as kind of early people for Upper Silesia. Uh, Father Jan Kapitza, um, a priest and political and social activist who worked in Upper Silesia in the early 20th century, once asked the rhetorical question, "What is an Upper Silesian? Is he a German, a Pole, a Prussian, simply an Upper Silesian, or simply a Catholic, or perhaps just an abstract human being?" And I think the question nicely captures the appeal of Upper Silesian history for historians such as myself. With no particular personal or institutional link to the region. And spilling impudently across the national categories that usually shape and constrain scholarly inquiries, upper Silesian lives force us to constantly shift our frames of reference, asking questions, making new comparisons, and new connections. At the time that Kapitza was writing and through most of the 20th century, the clear danger was this stimulating array of partially overlapping categories would be swamped by a stark choice between absorption into a German or absorption into a Polish national narrative. The recent assertion of an upper Silesian ethnic national identification and the application of that sensibility to the past may prove helpful in overcoming this binary framework, but it also has the potential to do the opposite. Um, in other words, to answer Kapitza's question with the blunt tautology that an upper Silesian is of course an upper Silesian Enough said, end of story. Um, And that answer is both rather dull, and I hope, uh, as I hope I persuasively suggest in this talk, ultimately quite misleading. The experiences and the stories of Upper Silesians are really too rich, too interesting, and too important to be fully contained by any national history of Germany, of Poland, or of Upper Silesia. Thank Thank you. Um,
3: yeah, uh, well, f- uh, just firstly, I'd say so thanks very much for a very interesting uh, and fairly complex uh, but very rich paper. I think what basically Jim's paper does is really probe into the anatomy of the new widespread sense of Silesian nationhood and new widespread support for the Silesian national movement. I think he helps us to understand the kind of conceptual resources which up Silesia's residents have been able to draw on, uh, informing a Silesian national consciousness and new Silesian national cons- consciousness. He, he he convincingly argues that it doesn't really make sense to explain this contemporary uh, uh, sense of Silesian nationhood. Mm-hmm. In the, and the autonomy movement, uh, the widespread support for the autonomy movement in, in terms of objective um, and, uh, objective traits such as language uh, the fact that until at least the late 1940s uh, a very large proportion of the Silesian population spoke a distinctive Silesian Slavic dialect. Likewise he shows that it doesn't really make sense to argue that the surge in support for the Silesian national movement has its roots above all in pragmatic economic grievances and pragmatic economic uh, considerations. He makes an insightful point that the main conceptual resource that the Silesian national consciousness and Silesian autonomy movement have drawn on is a belief in a shared uh, history, a shared Upper Silesian past, especially the shared history of the 1921 plebiscite and the shared experience of World War II and its immediate aftermath. So this is a really compelling explanation for how the Silesian national movement and Silesian national uh, sentiments have come into existence in the post-communist nation-state Poland. Um, but what I would like to get uh, more thoughts on from Jim perhaps is the question of what's caused this um, Silesian national sentiment and Silesian national movement uh, to actually increase in the last uh, decade or so. And why, why did more people choose uh, to put down Silesian ethnic nationality in tw- 2011, in the 2011 census, than did so nine years earlier? And why did the movement for Silesian Autonomy's electoral vote uh, increase uh, fairly dramatically between 2006 and 2011? I think uh, Jim does point at. Uh, one explanation for this, which is, um, uh, I think, I think you hint at basically the the idea that the activists behind the national the Silesian national movement have become kind of more active, more efficient in their organisation. Um, but I, I'm wondering whether something broader is going on um, here, and basically I'm wondering whether. Um, uh, essentially in the talk as I said you reject the idea that um, that this movements drawing on kind of pragmatic economic considerations but I'm wondering whether it's nevertheless drawing on other another form of pragmatism um, political pragmatism whether basically the movement is um, of the view that the best way and uh, the best way to articulate polit- political interests is um, in the language of nationality and in the language of na- nationalism. So that this is a kind of pragmatic decision. And if so, I think that kind of raises questions about the, the extent to which in Europe today we're still very much living in an age of nationalism where you have to define your political interest, or large parts of Europe, you, you have to define your political interests in the language of, of nationalism. Is this what this case demonstrates? or? Or does it demonstrate that about particularly post communist countries? Is this a kind of specifically post communist phenomenon that it's kind of bringing up? Um, another kind of possible explanation behind the kind of it, the growing uh, prominence of the Silesian national uh, uh, consciousness and Silesian national movement perhaps is um, I'm wondering whether uh, there's been an impact of. Uh, Poland's entry into the European Union in 2004 the fact that that kind of breaks down uh, traditional or, or long long-term nation, nation state boundaries and kind of opens up space for uh, this kind of regionalist nationalism so is that is that part perhaps part of the kind of the, ch- the, the growing support for this uh, Silesian nation that uh, consciousness um, uh, or, or or are there other f- other factors uh, i don't know um another interesting part of uh, jim's paper is uh, is the fact that as uh, um, as he, as he uh, said at the start uh, the 2011 in the 2011 census you've got uh, hundreds of thousands of people in upper Silesia declaring both uh, uh, Silesian ethnic nationality and polish ethnic nationality that's how i understood it i mean what do they How do they understand, what in in your view uh, is the explanation for this? How how are they actually understanding their national identity? I mean, do they really think that they belong to two distinct nations, and that kind of collapses the the concept of of nationhood as we know it, if they do? Um, Or are they actually not really saying that they're members of a Silesian nation, and they're actually viewing that as a subgroup? Of the Polish nation. I mean Mm. it's confusing and I kind of think well they give them the option of Silesian nationality uh, on a census doesn't necessarily mean that they think of themselves as ethno-nationally Silesian. I don't really know what the explanation is Uh, Mm. but uh, yeah it would be interesting to get your thoughts on that Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah another thought that this um, the paper for folks is um is uh, about the kind of relationship between this site, this this relatively new Silesian national movement, and also um, the German minority movement in Upper Silesia that we, we heard mention that at the start. Um, what is the relationship between the two? Have they, uh, is the is the well the German minority movement basically emerged earlier, as I understand it? So it's kind of already emerged in Upper Silesia in the late eighties as things started to uh, move towards collapse of communism and uh, and then there was already like strong political support for the German minority movement in Opposite from the start of the 19... relatively strong uh, support from the start of the 1990s they already they had representatives in in the national parliament, the same, uh, from, uh, from, from the start of the 1990s. So are there kind of common should we review these as two separate things, the German Minority Movement and the Silesian National Movement, or are they kind of part of the same thing? Uh, why did one emerge earlier than the other? Uh, that kind of thing. Um, but This kind of brings me to kind of uh, an important essay about um, Upper Silesia from the early post-war period by the sociologist Stanislaw Vysolovsky, who went to Upper Silesia at the end of the Second World War, right at the end of the Second World War, in summer 1945 uh, uh, and felt that he observed two different ways in which Upper Silesians distinguished themselves from the new Polish settlers who were arriving into Upper Silesia in that period and the Polish authorities Um, on the one hand he thought that some Upper Silesians uh, emphasized their German identity Spoke were, were increasingly speaking German in public, almost as a kind of sign of defiance to the to the arriving Poles. On the other hand, they were, um, he pointed out, that some Upper Silesians uh, made, uh, were trying to emphasise um, a, a kind of Upper Silesian identity. They were declaring to uh, Polish settlers, Polish officials that they were Schleswazi Silesians rather than Poles. So, in a way, that's a kind of embryonic. Uh, you could see this as an embryonic uh, form of th- these two different movements which emerge in the post communist period so uh, the question is basically about whether we should view them as part of the same thing He seemed, I think Soski in a way is of viewing them as part of the, a similar way of kind of showing estrangement from the Polish settlers and the Polish so uh, should we view them uh, the post-communist versions as well as a kind of expression of alienation from from the Polish Polish society and uh, and uh, the Polish authorities and and yeah the final kind of uh, bit of what uh, of well, in the rest of what uh, of my bit I want to say is is, uh, is I want to kind of pose a challenge to your central point as I understood it, um, which is that the the shared upper Silesian experience of the Second World War and its immediate aftermath is provides a, a basis for the new um, new Silesian national consciousness to, to draw on um, and I just want to pose a couple of challenges to that idea um, so the first is that um, it has to do with the zagłebir Zegremb- Dombrovskia region that you, that you mentioned Which is a territory which was joined to Upper Silesia by the Nazis in in nineteen thirty nine, and and remained part of Upper Silesia after the Second World War, as part of the Silesian Voivodeship. And I argue that the reason that in that region people don't uh, identify with the Silesian national movement is because this. Because that region is not historically viewed as part of Upper Silesia, that it was only um, that it was part of the Russian partition uh, during the 19th and early 20th centuries. Uh, it wasn't part of the Prussian uh, of Prussia, and uh, and that uh, and that view. And, and so, so we can't really kind of say that um, a shared World War II experience is enough or is a big part, it's an argument against saying that there's a shared World War II or even early post-war period as the, as a crucial element of the new Silesian national idea, because the Dombrova uh, Basin was part of Silesia in the World War II and early post-war period, so you see see the point I'm making. Um, And then, um, Yeah, okay, the second point is about, um, I would argue uh, that actually um, the two halves of Upper Silesia, the half which joined (coughs) Poland um, in 1922 and stayed in Poland in the interwar period, and the half which was part of Germany in the interwar period, that they actually had quite divergent experiences of the Second World War and the early post-war period. So that kind of also so which I've just described, but that also kind of goes against the idea that there's this, this shared experience of World War II and early post-war is, is the crucial factor here. I mean in Eastern, it was only, as, you, as you say in the period it's only in Eastern Upper Silesia that the, that the Deutsche Volkslister is implemented and the majority of People placed in the Deutsche Volksliste in mean Eastern Upper Silesia. Eastern Upper Silesia part which was part, which became was part of Poland in the interwar period. Um, most of the people um, were placed in category three, and that consigned them to um, a, a category which uh, a form of citizenship which did expose them to a greater degree of discrimination, as I understand it, than the Reichsdeutsche of Western Upper Silesia. Um, And then, so there there is a difference in their experience of the Second World War, I'd say, because of that. And then secondly, um, in the early post-war period, the Polish authorities also treated the two halves, the two interwar halves of Upper Silesia differently. The the verification ethnic screening process uh, was implemented in Western Upper Silesia, and the rehabilitation ethnic screening process was implemented in Eastern Opposite, yeah. Um so they're being put through a different process, I don't know, there is some distinction between the two and I would, have, I would say that mm-hmm. that affected their experience and, um, and a much larger proportion of Western Opposilesia's population were expelled after the Second World War as I understand it um, and, and I think a larger proportion fled from the Red Army so there are differences mm-hmm. in this period between the two so th- that, yeah, that, that just s- get, uh, is the basis for our years. For so, uh, so, so just one more point, which is just um, whether, I mean, as I understand it, um, this, the Silesian National Movement is basically concentrated or limited to present-day Silesian voivodeship, rather than, which only includes part mm. of Western Upper Silesia, Rather than the whole of Slavic dialect-speaking Upper Silesia, so I would, uh, so and it's German minority movement which represents the kind of alienation identity to grab hold of in opola uh, Voivodeship, which is where the most of Western Upper Silesia's territory is. That's too. It's very complicated there. That, that's the case. Um, <laughs> um, so. So, I, I would argue that these post war administrative boundaries played quite a big role from 1950 onwards, played quite a big role in defining the Silesian national movement. Uh,
1: yeah. yeah. Okay, I think, I mean, given the fact that the audience has been sitting patiently for an hour now, mm-hmm. so can you just hold on answering those questions and maybe you can factor those into some of your answers uh, to the audience? So, it's open for questions. We'll start with uh, Nick, please.
4: I just wondered where Lower Silesia is. Sorry. I mean, you talked about the Alpehsad Museum relationship with Poland and Germany and some larger entities or mm-hmm. splitting it up into the smaller entities of East and Western Alpehsad Museum. I mean, they don't have a lot of, uh, <coughs> the regional name, I just wondered, mm-hmm. I mean, my sense is that the, um, the Waterheim history of is very different from both the Germanization and the
1: do you take questions in a few in a row, cluster them, in the name of time? Do you want to go ahead and just take that one first? We'll go to Rebecca, won't you? Okay, um,
5: okay. Um, just one question. I was just wondering what the role of these and often the orphan-whitened civilian associations might um, be their daughters and brothers and grandsons of these people. No, for treating them. Yeah. Um, because um mm-hmm. coming from Germany I, I know nothing about the region but I know a lot about these people. And um, I was just and what I what I realized in the last years that the yeah the sons of the, the grandsons of these people are now going back to Silesia and buying their holiday homes there and spending mm-hmm. a lot of time there. And my impression is that they're doing a lot for the tourism, that, and that they're doing a lot for the heritage politics, and that they're um, having a great input in this new national identity. And I was just wondering um, what, what you think about, I mean, well, telling the story not only from the region itself, but telling this story as well from, well, another transnational perspective, Which, which you know, what was the impact?
1: we'll just go ahead and answer those two
2: questions In do you want to of Yeah, in terms of the I the question about lower is it relates to about fileses um, and, and their role more recently. Um, it sounds like too sort of, crude a distinction, but some of this does go back to a kind of genuine language boundary of um, really up the edge of middle Silesia and upper Silesia and divide between people who really do have kind of Slavic speech in their family histories and those who don't. Um, it's, again, obviously like any boundary, there's just some, some fuzziness to it, but it's it's a fairly pronounced boundary, and as you move into sort of central upper Silesia, you're dealing with a, a monolingual German population, and it translates as as mentioned before into this real demographic divide from areas where there's quite a lot of demographic continuity, though not abscess as Hugo is pointing to, um, in the western parts of Upper Silesia in particular, there's quite a bit about migration, but there's a very clear group who in the post-war Polish nomenclature was uh autophones, or that were were local, with the indication being local and Slavic. Um Whereas as you move west in Silesia, it, you just don't have any demographic continuity. Um, and some of this does is really <coughs> apparent. It is a, certainly a fuzzier boundary, I think, during the, the Nazi period. Whereas um, says mentioning there is a certain kind of willful denial of any kind of Slavic background of those within the parts of Upper Silesia that remain German during the interwar period. But there is a kind of background understanding of the reality of that, that difference. Um, that they, there's villages where you hear people speaking a Slavic speech everywhere, and then further west where you don't have that. Um, and that's related, just looking up to, heavy handed a link here to um, Hugo's questions about what divisions are really. Um, emphatic and decisive. I think the really fascinating thing about the gower is how systematically the Nazis ignore <laughs> its boundaries. There's a, the old uh, frontiers, which again, looking at this map seem are almost impossible to decipher, were absolutely decisive for racial policy. You cross that old boundary um, between Prussia and Russia and you move from everyone's a german to no one's a german um two feet over the line everything changes and so i think that there's a, some ways um so i tried to get across to uh absolutely right that the decisive boundaries are going back to the older period but what is so fascinating is this racialization of those boundaries the insistence well actually this happens to just be that imperial frontier but the insistence that that is an absolute racial boundary. Everyone to the west of this line is of German stock. Um, Basta. And again, it's a, a crazy policy by almost every stretch, but it is it is so fulfilling in a way. Um, I get back to this question of um, the expellees and those who do move to Germany, and it is something that. I was thinking about it during this talk, but did end up kind of leaving out um, how this relates to those who don't stay in Poland and those who, um, who do leave. And there are a significant number um, who do leave. Those who leave by the end of the war and its immediate aftermath, um, again, it's the process of kind of self-selection do tend to really identify more decisively as simply as German. Those who migrate later, um, in part just through their cultural repertoire, but also just that experience of having lived in communist Poland for perhaps another generation or two, do tend to have a little different self identification. Um, and so I think for those returning back to the, the region, it, it is a real distinction again. some this is a very fundamental everyday life terms between people who can immediately strike up a easy conversation with all the local residents because they speak Polish, and those who don't understand a word of Polish. Um, that's a big difference, um, and and a fairly again some people kind of in the um, the borderlands of that experience. But um, I think and it kind of goes to. Kiko's ritual War II in terms of the differences in different parts of Silesia at the, at the end of the war, um, really just radically different um, continuities and discontinuities. Um, yeah, in terms of the links between groups um, that are based in Germany, and Poland, um I, I, said, I don't, I was sort of thinking about that right in this paper, just don't know. That much about the interplay between them. Um, I was just doing some web research I was struck to find out that um, there is apparently a, a movement for a, like, a solution autonomy that's a chapter not only in the UK but currently in Norway of all places so there is there is an internationalization of this but the, um, the obvious question of how that relates to groups based in, in Germany
0: um, uh, I, I don't know as much about. It. I may just say I may just add something to this that, um, Herbert Czaja who is one of the leaders of <coughs> German expedite organizations and who was really, di- uh, who was really uh, diabolized by the communist propaganda in Poland particularly in the 1960s uh, he lived long enough actually to be awarded uh, a decoration by local Polish officials in the early 1990s but he apparently also actually contributed some donation to a local uh, to a local budget, but I don't think that this is this is uh, uh, that, that that essentially proves anything. Okay. What do you mean? Tom? What do you mean? Uh, I My question is about the it's the analytical
6: And I wonder whether this diagnosis is uh, somewhat stipulated by the type of methodology that you—that know, of course agency never exists in a vacuum, but within certain structural conditions. And by looking at the history of the Silesia, it's the structural conditions that sort of prevail in terms of the uh, policies of the German state. Towards uh, these lands, the policy of the Polish state towards these lands. Um, But I wonder whether by locking ourselves into the dichotomy structure and agency, we then reproduce very simplistic binaries of victim, perpetrator, hero, and villain, etc., etc., while actually that goes to the beginning of of my argument is maybe you paid a little bit more attention to what the locals are saying. Uh, How do they identify themselves? Not necessarily drawing on a softball, but uh, speaking to the locals. Maybe not necessarily those very vocal ones, but those who live there on on everyday life. basis, I think that would help to move this binary of structure and agency more into a continuum with lots of shades of gray in between, so that you would see the colonization on the one hand after the Second World War would be that um, in high school and primary school, the people had to speak Polish. The moment they left the school, they were So uh, I think the way the identity was preserved would very much Go around these big binaries through which we tend to interpret the history mm-hmm. of these particular lands. Um, so I think I think paying more attention to the nuances and to the subtleties that actually are in abundance inside these other. You know, I think that would cast a bit more, um, more light on the map of who these people are, and the this, you know, I think, an answer question, German and uh, just uh, a uh, really last uh, last point. Uh, it's just um, the question of Zagrebia, I think it's important to stress that after the Second World War, it was also a very huge migration from Poland, so uh, oh. ethnic Poles to that uh, to that land because of the industrialization that took place in Silesia. So these were the people mm-hmm. that came from other parts of Poland that were then working in the mines. So they would not identify themselves as Silesians due to this huge immigration. And the second thing think you raised this point is a bit different between 2001 census and 2011 census. Well, in 2001 census, the category of Silesian as one of the categories you from was not was not there. So these people who identified themselves as Silesians. they said, I do not feel I'm poll or let's say put to my category as the first ethnicity as the poll because that's what you have on your list of categories, but also in the other put that I signed And because it was so many people that actually declared themselves, I think it was 30, 000, this then started like a wave of media, of again uh, going to Strasbourg and saying that we should have this nationality, etc. So because of this whole frenzy that happened around this, uh, or the mediatization of the, the matter of the identity, of the organization of in ten years
1: later, so many more people, felt that yes, this is a category in the identity. Jim, for your question, relate mm-hmm. to that, I want to something else. you want to take that, Jim, before we move on to your question, which yeah, is quite different. different? Okay, maybe you want to take that question, Jim?
2: Yeah, no, I I can say short, I, I agree, and <laughs> so I was hoping I was really doing that, is uh, yeah, precisely what I would want to get at is in making that leap to nationality. It's all about these, these categories. And I think as you described the experience, what's decisive understanding these kind of sleep and experiences and the role of the, the texture of everyday life is precisely that they had to work with those categories. They couldn't simply deny them. Um, the, the structure in particular in terms of spoken language and if I research on the, the, the local actors, people born in the region, who've always served as local spokespeople, who provided the kind of written record that we have of Native Silesians, that comes through very, very clearly, um, that this, this sense of the impossibility of saying, I'm simply Upper Silesian, that's self-evident, that it has to be explained and negotiated through these other categories. And I think that is something quite fascinating um, in terms of uh, uh, get a sense of how those categories structure the way they live their lives, um, that it doesn't just sort of happen in a separate plane ex- kind of experience, but has to be mediated through that kind of constant binary referencing. Um, and yeah, I think that's the thing I wanted to, to say about that. Um, <laughs>
5: First off, thank you very much for such an interesting talk, and also so thoughtful with these really wonderful formulations. I, I really enjoyed it and you know, learned a lot from it. Um, but and my question actually doesn't address Silesia, but kind of other older Prussian areas inside of Poland, um, like for example, East Prussia, or um, where I know the landscapes are being recovered. There's conservation of buildings and kind of all the stories that adhere to them. It's kind of heritage movement without the people. So just thinking about, you know, this so use an example, but other sort of how it might be similar or different to other older Prussian areas where, where East Prussia I know about this landscape and the historical conservation, but the, the people are missing and the Missourians seem to be submerged again. Or I know very little about this. This is a genuine question to you. Um, and another area that I was thinking about was Breslau. There's a whole, I'm using it as a word name, it's true. a whole uh, recent publication of Breslau that really recovers its Jewish past, is there any reverberation of that in some of these regional movements that Breslau was a German-Jewish city in respects? Because in, in the publications coming out in English in North America, this is how
2: yeah, and it's a really interesting comparison between um, these areas where there is a significant amount of demographic continuity, um, that's an important point in terms of the mix of countries and disconties, there's also a lot of, of in-migration, so it is sort of, um, across the region of people with kind of long-term family past in the area. Um, as well as in migrants but how that compares to scenarios where there is complete demographic rupture mm-hmm. to your efforts to kind of go back and mm-hmm. as you see kind of reclaim landscapes of particular buildings in terms of her earlier incarnations um i in sense i think it's a little more by by this some questions kind of thinking about a particular relationship to the jewish mm-hmm. past i think it's um uh, some that's a bit more difficult in this context because so much attention is really about these kind of renarculations of the experiences of a, the continuous population and there's so much contention and controversy and difficulty around that. it is my sense of the sites of former synagogues, um, when Padovizers living, it is there's just no um action on on that front that I could see, I'm sure, some of those, um, but I think it compared to areas where there is a more emphatic sense of rupture and I think kind of a sensitivity to categorical absence, I think can bring in both kind of absence from the German expulsions but also the different kind of absence from um, the elimination of Jewish communities. But yeah, I think about it a little more how that really compares, but it is, a, I think that the, the elements of demographic kind of make it a bit different um, kind of dynamic when you do have, um, again, in some cases, communities, there's complete rupture in terms of the global views being destroyed and its, its members killed um, and those that will, you know, those due to migration. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Hi. My name is Maciej and I'm from from Germany. But actually, I was born in Gdańsk, and uh, Gdańsk is uh, quite close to the uh, Kashubian region. And I think my question is related to your first question because mm-hmm. I see many um, um, analogies between uh, Silesia and, and the Kashubian region. But uh, I would like to hear your opinion. Um, are there um, differences between between uh, um, the people and the Silesian people? Uh, do you have any evidence on um, yeah, this, um, the differences or the analogies between both, both regions?
2: Yeah, I think there's quite a lot of, of, of similarities. Um, it, it's a natural sure one quite striking one in terms of the most recent form of reference in the, the Second World War is that the uh, fairly similar Folk's Lista experience um, a little different mechanisms and that, in that case, it, with the characterization of this is completely top-down is, is a bit more accurate and that um, the way the local Nazi administration really didn't engage the population the way that it did in Upper Silesia was just sort of by kind of paperwork fiat that an entire village was declared um, to be a uh, full stretcher, but the broad outcomes are quite similar and so the processes of, of rehabilitation after the war are probably very very similar. Um, the earlier histories as well, I, one thing that I brought in at the end and sort of here and there um, but it's much more the focus of my earlier work is on the particular role of, of um, everyday Catholic religious practice and it, it's a common theme in both in, uh, of the resolution and Kashubia of carving that out as a kind of marker of local identity of of religious observance, as being um, defining regional characteristic. Um, Similar to, though, again, I really um, uh, defer defer to others with more knowledge of the the linguistic subtleties, too, but the the basic, um, to the the first slide of a, a dialect or ethnolect that's similar to Polish, but are really distinct from it, I think, is, is also probably quite, quite comparable. Um, again, it's not sure in terms of the current-day associational or organizational context, I think there's certainly a sense of having the same general cause among uh, Kashyyyk and Resolution activists, but again, I didn't know a lot of detail about the kind of specific um, interactions that they've had.
0: It is classified as a separate language. You know, because, in the, cool. when you yeah. go to the when you go to the, the Idan's nice province, um, most of the places located in you Kashubi know, actually have dual names. So, it is sort of, you know, they are the minority. Yeah. You know. yeah.
2: I think it's mm-hmm. interesting.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, I think we'll just go ahead and the last two questions. Uh, sorry, you two. I don't know. I can't remember who first. So, you in the back, sir. My name is
4: William Black. Um, my question relates to this, the idea of the importance of the Second World War experience in kind of, uh, forming this contemporary Silesian uh, identity. Um, I'm wondering <coughs> whether there's a relationship between that and the kind of uh, memory politics of the last sort of recent times that have been proven, which have kind of really pushed for the Warsaw Uprising, this normal kind of powerful symbolic of the Polish Second World War experience. So under Kaczynski's kind of establishment, and of museum, and so on. So, um, and whether there's a sense of, kind of alienation from that kind of, sort of focused uh, narrative of war you know, and which kind of is, is contributing to this. I mean, one, one thing that made me think about it was I, I read some time ago, so I don't remember very well, that interview, with a Serbian writer, some writer uh, who actually um, one of the things that he was kind of outlining as distinct between the we's Eyesians the reasons and you yeah. poles, which I remember it's kind of using this term you poles. you have this kind of martyrological uh, attitude at the base of your identity, which we don't share, which kind of reminded me of when you spoke about the kind of Czech attitude, which is kind of opposite attitude to, it's kind of opposite attitude to kind of narratives as well. So I just wondered if there was so negative reaction mm-hmm. as a factor step. uh, Schwedt, former MD4 yeah. for student here. At St. um, just very briefly, following on this uh, pragmatic uh, thread, pragmatic explanation also with um, Hugo Service, touch up on um, EU membership, I wonder if you've given any thoughts to um, as to whether the um, devolution, the, um, the administrative reform uh, that started in the late 1990s, uh, of course was mandated by membership in the EU, and was all about local empowerment and regional empowerment. Um, whether that has played any role um, in a kind of a grander s- uh, scale of of, of empowering uh, local communities, local constituencies, but perhaps also specifically in terms of
2: providing a platform for some of the leaders who uh, emerged in this movement later on. Yeah, thanks for this question, So They quite a nice opportunity from different angles to touch back on. And he goes uh, for this question really. Yeah. Think, why now? Um, question, which is a, a very good one. Um, they, to Puga's point, to your point, that it, it's it's very true that the broader kind of European context as well as the little Polish context that's uh, kind of a right moment for for, for regional movements. Um, this idea that this um, figurative kind of movement to a national classification is a particularly powerful form of claims making. Um, and again, in the broader Polish context, this they, they, they could be plugged into um, a broader um, kind of federalist or decentralized vision of Poland. I think all play important roles there. Um, but I do think, I think, especially kind of thinking about the unique um, uh, sort of vitality apparently of the this Search of Salesian self identification um, and especially the way it's played out. I, I have increasingly that this, um, the reference to the Second World War, is really crucial in terms of um, the kind of life experiences, or at this stage, kind of life experiences of parents and grandparents. Um, but that's the really kind of powerful memory politics that really emerges in terms of, sort of what does this mean to about the Silesian experience, um, yeah, and I think it's interesting. point about with the um, latest round of interest in the interesting, the the Warsaw uprising, of thinking about that that kind of microcosmic claim that this is the, the part that stands in for the whole, and um, and I think it's no uh, coincidence that when uh, historians like Galberta who kind of engage with these issues, the obvious thing to write about is the the folks list experience um, is this, uh, again, particularly given the centrality of the Second World War, um, it uh, is just a particular, uh, even though I tend to be a little skeptic about kind of over-psychologized explanations of the necessity of coming to terms with that, I think there there are clear patterns to always going back to revisit the Second World War. Again, and. Um, and in the, the Polish context, across a, a number of dimensions quite recently. So the fact that there is this incredibly distinctive Polish experience of war that quite literally just couldn't speak its name, I think is is a very, very important part of um, how, again, that's why I frame this. What What's the point of defining Yourself as a Legion? What is that bringing to the surface? I think um, that is, it's, what it involves more than anything. Um, just to touch through briefly, I think mentioned, or I said they to try to do justice to them. Um, in terms of what combined polish silesian identities mean, uh, I'm sure the safe answer is that it you mean know, all sorts of things that I'm sure for different people, that very different things. But I do think one, because I do think it's a sort of mental slippage that is important to draw to when, um, and talking about sort of a German-Polish borderline in early periods, then people automatically assume a kind of ethnic distinction of German and Poles and a mixed identity. People think of intermarriage and mixed true. marriages. Um, and at least for the most part, that's not really what's going on at the turn of the century. There are people who actually are sort of part of the same um, kind of genealogical background, but are kind of jointly going through a cultural transition. I think actually today, at least in some of these cases, what you might be talking about in some cases is precisely a kind of mixed marriage, or the children are the people who, on one side, sort of go back within Silesia for generations, um, but other parts of the family. There, I think that gets back to the points of this migration issue, um, that it, it, that we're kind of grounded sense of ethnicity that might be one of the things that they're getting at, is that it's sort of. An ethnically mixed background of some Polish, some Silesian, um, and then to to the German minorities, I think it's quite true. But related to your broader question about what distinctions you have, and um, a good kind of counterpoint in the sort of splitting versus my my lumping of um, these experiences. Um, it is really true that it's within um, the spoke of Poland. Uh, it's very, very roughly corresponding to interwar German Silesia that you've saw already in the early 1990s of smaller but quite substantial group identifying as as German. Um, And there today it is, uh, I keep pointing to the Nazi first formative, but it is in this case the most recent German past. And I know the um, anthropologist colleague of mine who did some extensive work there is that it's be really noticeable in telling that the most recent kind of script of Germanness that they have is from the Nazi period for people in the 90s um, who are still alive. That's their memory of Germany, is Nazi Germany. Um, and so it's it's a very kind of particular, to not to imply that all those um, identifying with the German were at the time um, neo-Nazi, but it is a very particular, immediate, most recent point of reference that they have in mind. Um, and while well, there are some people identifying with the German minority formally in <coughs> Eastern Upper procedures, it's, it's very, very few. So it'd be interesting now, I th- I've, 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 kind of from the statistics I cited, there's um, a little bit of movement within the German minority. I think the um, big envoy story there is still kind of outward migration, um, but I think at the margins, at least, you're getting a bit of green, of identification as, as Silesian, um, and the, that kind of broad area of Silesian identification i flagged earlier does actually spill a bit over into the whole for it's going, not just in the, the Silesian where it's going.
1: Okay, very good. I think we're going to have to then uh, draw things to a close. I, mean, I think it a really nice, uh, the case study interface of, of regional national histories, and I wonder if this in the sense um about uh, larger issues of kind of separatism across Europe other the kind of echoes of the kind of scholarship Catalan uh, story that speaks becomes part of a kind of Cold War, uh, post-Cold War uh, setting in which uh, these kind of regional separatist groups in a sense start to stitch together in interesting ways. Anyway, but um, I think at this point we've, uh, we've worked too hard. I want to thank very much uh, Jim and Hugo for his comment and thank everybody for coming tonight. Uh, thank you.